I was 15, someone stole my bicycle. One day I opened the garage door and the bike was not there. Have you ever been a victim of theft or burglary? If so, you can probably identify with my anger, disappointment and humiliation at that moment. Someone just took my bike and left and there's nothing I could do to stop it. Hello and welcome to Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. Those who have experienced a cybercrime must also know these feelings of frustration. A hacker could be halfway across the world when they attack you, and you might have no way of figuring that out or catching them even if you could. So frustrating. But is there really nothing we can do? Are we really so helpless against cybercrime? Don't be so sure. In early 2011, Georgia's Computer Emergency Response Team, or CERT, discovered an attempted cyber attack against government and military officials in their country. Someone broke into Georgian news sites and planted malicious code in them. An attack known as a drive-by download. The code was injected into carefully selected pages, mostly articles about the Georgian army and its links with NATO. While users read these articles, a malware installed on his or her computer scanned the hard disk for documents containing the word NATO, and if such documents were found, sent them to its operators. The Georgians had no doubt that this was a targeted attack. Their investigation found that only about 390 computers were affected by the malware, and about 70% of them belonged to Ukrainian politicians, officers, and government officials. The Georgians also had no doubt about who was behind this espionage attempt. Russia. Russia and Georgia share a complex history, and only a few years earlier, in 2008, they fought a brief but bloody war. Although they were sure of the identity of the attackers, the Georgians had nothing to do about it. Diplomatic relations with Russia were frigid, and even if the identity of the hacker or the group behind the attack was discovered, the Russians would not hand them over. In fact, Russian law prohibits the extradition of Russian citizens to foreign countries. I can almost feel for myself the helplessness and frustration of these Georgians. But then, the Georgian CERT decided to do something unusual. They set up a lab computer infected with the Russian malicious code and planted in it a file called NATOGeorgiaAgreement.zip. As the researchers had hoped, the malware discovered the interesting file and sent it to its operators. But, as you might have already guessed, instead of a juicy document about military cooperation, the zip file contained malicious software. When the Russian hacker opened the file on his computer, the Georgian software took over. CERT researchers scanned the Russian hacker's computer, took screenshots, and even watched the hacker in real time as he was writing malicious code and corresponding with other hackers. He likes to use Total Commander, if you're curious about that kind of stuff. They even turned on the computer's webcam and took photos and videos of the man sitting in front of his monitor. 
In October 2012, the Georgian researchers combined all the information about the Russian hacker into a detailed 27-page PDF document and published it on the internet. The document contained all the identifying details that the Georgians had managed to glean about the hacker, including his pictures, and his clear connections to the Russian government. This kind of exposure is usually referred to as doxing. Why did the Georgians dox the Russian hacker? The answer is quite clear. The Georgians knew that they had no way of putting their hands on him, so they decided to take a different course of action, one that we all know quite well in social networks, shaming. If they couldn't get the hacker or Russian government to pay for their actions, at the very least they could shame them publicly or possibly cause other countries to be suspicious of Russia in the future. I have no doubt that this doxing has reduced, at least slightly, the sense of insult and frustration caused by the breaking. So maybe there's something to be done against cyber criminals and malicious hackers. Perhaps organizations and companies don't have to sit idly by, building complicated defenses around themselves and hope they will not be attacked. Perhaps, as the cliché says, best defense is offense. Maybe the solution is to hack back. Of course, there's nothing new under the sun. The hackback is an ancient strategy in technological terms. Before we dive into the debate about this idea and its place in the world of modern information security, though, let's go back a few decades to one of the most fascinating historical examples of such a move. June 1982, deep in the heart of the Siberian wilderness. NORAD monitors, those built by the U.S. and Canada to watch for nuclear activity from the USSR, receive a signal indicating a 3-kiloton blast from inside Russia's border. Word makes its way to the National Security Council, and immediately, fear sets in. Fear, but also confusion. Those same monitors failed to pick up any trace of the electromagnetic pulse that should have accompanied such a launch. Thomas C. Reed, then vice chairman of the National Commission on Strategic Forces, remembers that day well. In his autobiography, he recounts the warning, the confusion, and the point when a mild-mannered colleague, Gus Weiss, proceeded to share news with his colleagues equally comforting and mystifying. Quote, Weiss came down the hall to tell his fellow NSC staffers not to worry, he writes. It took him another 20 years to tell me why. There's a reason why only a handful of people on the face of the earth knew exactly what happened on that day in the summer of 1982 and why it took 20 years for the rest of us to find out. That explosion, it turns out, was the least interesting part of what Ronald Reagan went on to deem the greatest spy story of the century. When then-president of France, François Mitterrand, met with President Reagan at the G7 summit in Ottawa on June 19, 1981, it wasn't for a chat among buddies. Instead, he revealed an intelligence operation, later deemed the farewell dossier that would go on to prove one of the finishing blows to Soviet Russia. 
The subject of this discussion was a man named Vladimir Vetrov. Nearing 50, Vetrov spent much of his career as a Line X officer in the KGB's Directorate T program, which was responsible for stealing technology secrets from the West. Having moved up in the organization, he was now the man in charge of evaluating all Directorate T intel and passing it on to the proper authorities. In other words, a particularly effective position for a potential defector to cause major damage. Suddenly, a president whose legacy would be defined by his success in finishing the USSR had the names of, quote, more than 200 Line X officers stationed in 10 KGB residents in the West, along with more than 100 leads to Line X recruitments, end quote as well as some 4,000 highly classified documents outlining Russia's master strategy for keeping pace with the U.S. during the Cold War. What the documents revealed was staggering. The U.S. had effectively been fighting a Cold War arms race against itself this whole time. It turned out that Russia's technical abilities were years behind America's, but their spying operations were as advanced as any the world had ever seen. Without detection, they'd successfully planted hundreds of agents throughout North America and Europe, supporting the USSR's scientific advancements through stolen tech from the West. Most insidious of all was a master plan thought up by Leonid Brezhnev, leader of the USSR at that time, to take advantage of Richard Nixon's diplomatic detente. Detente was a general agreement designed to ease tensions between the two powers by encouraging greater discourse, nuclear negotiations, and joint research projects. But the KGB used this openness as an opportunity to plant hundreds of Line X officers in supposedly quote-unquote friendly research teams sent to the U.S. About one-third of a Russian agricultural delegation in the U.S., for instance, was made up of malls. Another particularly cheeky incident involved a Soviet guest to the Boeing company who applied adhesive to his shoes in order to obtain metal samples. Vetrov's intel proved what some feared most. The U.S. office under the Secretary of Defense released a report that concluded, quote, Western nations were thus subsidizing the Soviet military buildup, and that, quote, targets included defense contractors, manufacturers, foreign trading firms, academic institutions, and electronic databases, end quote. Bad news as it was, this was also the information that could just about take down an already economically crippled and military-dependent USSR. Reagan could now simply purge every red from within American ranks, depriving them of their main source of intel that had allowed them to keep pace for all these years. Sounds great, right? Or America could have a little fun with their sparring partner. So thought Gus Weiss, a modest by nature, economist by trade policy advisor on the National Security Council, who came up with a more creative plan that would mark one of the single earliest, most significant instances of cyber warfare 
the world has ever known. His idea, in his own words, quote, why not help the Soviets with their shopping? Now that we know what they want, we can help them get it, end quote. The plan was set. The U.S. would continue feeding information and technology to the Soviets. Of course, that information would be purposefully incorrect and misleading. It will pass security tests, but fail in operation. It was a foolproof plan. In revisiting the affair years later, Weiss himself explained the genius of the idea. Quote, If some double agent told the KGB the Americans were alert to Line X and were interfering with their collection by subverting, if not sabotaging the effort, I believe the United States still could not lose. The Soviets, being a suspicious lot, would be likely to question and reject everything Line X collected. If so, this would be a rarity in the world of espionage, an operation that would succeed in even if compromised, end quote. One instance of this planned success, a control system software built for a massive physical and economic juggernaut of a pipeline running across Russia, quote, That was to run the pumps, turbines and valve was programmed to go haywire, to reset pump speeds and valve settings to produce pressures far beyond those acceptable to the pipelines, joints and wells. End quote. The result, in June 1982, quote, "The most monumental non-nuclear explosion and fire ever seen from space." It's still a matter of debate as to why Vladimir Vetrov did what he did. Many American sources claim he was driven by ideological motivations. Sergei Kostin, author of one of the few books written about Vetrov, believed it a revenge plot on a corrupt KGB that didn't properly recognize his talents and achievements. In the end, Vetrov was arrested for an unrelated crime, during the processing of which his espionage activities were discovered and he was executed in 1983. The CIA instituted protective countermeasures to keep his secrets alive. But even without Vetrov around anymore, the impact of the farewell dossier would remain one of the lesser-known yet key factors in the demise of the Soviet Union. What went on behind Russia's closed door following the pipeline incident is still largely unknown, but either way, for the rest of its lifespan, the USSR would either be plagued with faulty technology or massive and unavoidable paranoia of such. Within the decade, helped by a sneaky use of early malware technology, the United States would formally defeat the world's second greatest power, a beast of its own creation. The farewell dossier incident is a fairly early example of a hackback. Seeding international failures in engineering documents is probably a rather complex matter. But as Jonathan Striem Amit, Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of Cyberism, says, nowadays, hackback 
is much simpler. Another option is there's a, another option is what's called hackback and there's a great debate in the security defenders community on the legitimacy of, of that concept. What is hackback? Imagine for example that I put on my own machine a document that I'll you know very deliciously called you know my trade secrets or whatever. The secret recipe for the, the crab recipe, uh, the, the crab secret, yeah <laughs> the secret recipe for crab potty dot doc in my on my machine but this document is actually an uh, a weaponized uh, weaponized exploited document that when run on a legitimate legitimate uh, windows would uh, for example actually exploit the machine to create a r- remote process Control the same kind of tool that hackers are using against us. It doesn't necessarily need to be a you know very sophisticated unknown zero day. It could exploit you know some relatively recent that something has already been patched, but if somebody is not very careful, they may still be vulnerable to it. If the hackback is not such a complex technological challenge, we can expect companies to adopt it as common practice. And indeed, there are recent examples to be found. For example, in August 2017, ProtonMail, an email service company, identified someone trying to fish its customers and send them to a fake login page that mimicked their own. The fake login page was hosted on the servers of a university in Indonesia. ProtonMail employees hacked the servers and deleted the malicious page. In its Twitter account, ProtonMail updated its customers about the phishing campaign and even tweeted, quote, We also hacked the phishing site, so the link is down now, end quote. On the face of it, ProtonMail seems to have done something good for its users. It hacked back against its aggressors, preventing an attack that could have hurt many unsuspecting customers. But if ProtonMail did such a good job... Why did the company's management decide, only a few hours after the announcement, to erase the tweet in question, instruct its employees not to answer questions from journalists, and generally behave as if the whole thing had never happened? There is good reason for that, and it is that under the current law, hacking back is illegal. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act explicitly states that hacking into someone else's computer is a criminal offense. And yes, even if it's against someone who just broke into your network. What's the debate? I mean, it sounds like a great idea, potentially. Well, there's always a question of where do you draw the line? How much active do you go against that person? And more importantly, how can you assure that the hacker isn't using some third-party victim to... In the process here and for example I'll give you an example suppose the hacker isn't using like isn't coming to me through the internet regularly he's coming to me through a third party compromise so he's, he's attacking company he took a, over and somebody else's machine exactly. and he's using it as, a, as an attack vector exactly so it, he's using somebody else's machine as an attack vector and a source of attack to exploit you know my company's machine by hacking back onto that and Onto that inter- intermediary machine I'm actually committing a crime against a unsuspecting innocent person the fact that he isn't already a victim doesn't give me the right to attack him back and make them get him to a state that's even worse at the get-go so the collateral damage potential in hackback is huge the collateral damage that Yonatan Stream Amit speaks of is one of the toughest problems facing anyone planning a hackback. Even if it's a huge company, 
with enormous resources. NJ Rat and NJ Worm are two malware programs that took over millions of Windows computers around the world in 2014. The hackers suspected of operating these botnets were Muhammad Ben Abdallah and Nasser Al Muatiri, both from countries in the Persian Gulf. Microsoft is known for its proactive approach to cybercriminals. Over the years, the company has collaborated with law enforcement agencies to take over botnets and, in some cases, even offered prizes to those who provide incriminating information about malware authors. It's no wonder, then, that Microsoft filed a civil suit against Ben Abdallah and Al-Motiri in court. But Microsoft did not stop there. It asked the court to approve their own takeover of the computer infrastructure that the two used to manage their botnets. This infrastructure belonged to an American company called Vitalverks Internet Solutions, which does business under the name NoIP. Microsoft has asked the court to authorize routing all network traffic destined for NoIP's servers to its servers, thereby taking control of the bots. Now, all the facts indicate that NoIP is one of these companies that walk on the thin line between what's forbidden and permitted in the world of cybercrime. The company itself does not take any part in cybercriminal activity. But as Microsoft wrote in its affidavit to the court, and as Eugene Kaspersky confirmed in a post on his blog, it was an open secret that many a hacker has made extensive use of NoIP's services. NoIP offers a free service called Dynamic DNS, which allows a hacker to frequently change the address of a command and control service of his botnet, making it difficult for law enforcement agencies to take over and shut it down. Indeed, as Kaspersky points out, quote, a simple search via the VirusTotal scanning engine confirms this fact with a cold hard figure. A total of 4.5 million unique malware samples sprout from NoIP. End quote. In its official announcement on the company's blog, Microsoft wrote, quote, Our research revealed that out of all dynamic DNS providers, NoIP domains are used 93% of the time for NJRAT and NJWorm infections, which are the most prevalent among the 245 different types of malware currently exploiting NoIP domains. Microsoft has seen more than 7.4 million NJRAT and NJWorm detections over the past 12 months, which doesn't account for detections by other antivirus providers. Despite numerous reports by the security community on NoIP domain abuse, the company has not taken sufficient steps to correct, remedy, prevent, or control the abuse, or help keep its domains safe from malicious activity. End quote. The evidence presented by Microsoft convinced the court that no IP cooperates with bot operators or at least allows them to operate freely. The court allowed Microsoft to seize 23 domains that belonged to no IP and redirect internet traffic to its servers. 
Richard Boscovich, Assistant General Counsel of Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit, was understandably satisfied. Quote, Playing offense against cybercriminals is what drives me and everyone here at Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit. Today, Microsoft has upped the ante against global cybercrime, taking legal action to clean up malware and help ensure customers stay safe online. End quote. But the day after the seizure, a slightly less joyful picture emerged. No IP, it turns out, had 4 million customers, and many of them, perhaps even most of them, were normative and utterly lawful users. It turns out that, much like any other technology, dynamic DNS also has legitimate uses. For example, in connecting security cameras to the internet, hosting sites on home servers, and running game servers. Microsoft's takeover of no IP addresses had affected many of these customers without any warning. No IP was flooded with complaints from angry customers and posted the following statement on its blog. Quote, We want to update all our loyal customers about the service outages that many of you are experiencing today. It is not a technical issue. This morning, Microsoft served a federal court order and seized 22 of our most commonly used domains because they claimed that some of the subdomains have been abused by creators of malware. We were very surprised by this. We have a long history of proactively working with other companies when cases of alleged malicious activity have been reported to us. Unfortunately, Microsoft never contacted us or asked us to block any subdomains, even though we have an open line of communication with Microsoft corporate executives. End quote. Whether or not no IP is really as innocent as it claims, it is quite clear that despite Microsoft's best intention, innocent users suffered clear damage, and it is the same sort of collateral damage that I mentioned earlier, because of which the law explicitly prohibits hackback operations. Just nine days after capturing the NoIP domain names, Microsoft was forced to make a public apology to NoIP and its customers and return the addresses it has seized. The bottom line is then that hackback is dangerous for the same reason that a gunfight between police officers and criminals is dangerous for innocent bystanders passing by on the street. In addition, those who choose such an active defense put themselves at a legal risk since under our existing laws, hacking a computer is an offense, no matter the motive. That is why Sam Curry, Cyberism's chief product officer, is not enthusiastic about that strategy, to say the least. Let's be clear, there's a cold war online in a very cyber-turbulent space. And it is multipolar. And if we start to encourage hackback, then every nation, not only every nation, but every company, every organization, and private armies will start to emerge. That becomes a world that, frankly, could threaten it for all of us. So I don't want to see a world emerge where everyone feels, you know, it's like a Mexican standoff. Everyone's got massive firepower pointed at everyone, and someone pulls the trigger. 
that's not a good world to do business in and live in and improve the human condition. So I would like to say uh, that we need to have our laws have a general, like, just as we don't approve vigilantism, I don't believe personally that we should condone, condone hack back by companies. Um, no company is going to stand up against a nation state and having our having our multinationals bang it out with each other is a very daunting thing or as one commentator wrote in Bruce Schneier's blog quote hacking back is like claiming that the problem with the Wild West in the 1800s was that it simply wasn't wild enough and quote but despite these fears, Hackbacks are a temptation that many organizations are unable to resist. No one likes to sit and wait for someone else to attack them. It's almost against human nature. Michael Sulmeyer, the Belfer Center's Cybersecurity Project Director at the Harvard Kennedy School, told a reporter for The Daily Beast, quote, I'm pretty convinced that the current arrangement of merely asserting that hacking back is illegal, so therefore do nothing, I do not think that this is a sustainable approach. Something's going to have to change, end quote. There are a great number of people who agree with these words. Adding to the effect, the NSA and the CIA are usually in no hurry to come to the aid of small and medium-sized businesses, since, understandably, they are reluctant to expose their sophisticated cyber tools just to solve a business crime. That's why there are several companies that offer hackback services. Hack the hackers to delete stolen sensitive information or launch DDoS attacks to slow or deter attackers. It's hard to know how widespread this strategy really is because hardly anyone will admit to using it. That is the background over which Republican Representative Tom Graves from Georgia proposed in 2007 a bill to Congress called the Active Cyber Defense Certification Act, a.k.a. ACDC, that would allow victims of a cyber attack to attack back without legal consequences. This move comes in the wake of a growing demand by many companies and organizations that the U.S. government do something to help them against the growing tsunami of cyber-industrial espionage, particularly from Chinese and Russian hackers stealing American companies' trade secrets and selling them to their foreign competitors. Tom Graves' bill is still in the process of legislation, And so we still have some time before we know for sure if the ACDC Act is a good idea or, as the song goes, just another highway to hell. Pun intended. Yeah, my editor says I've reached a new level of corny, and he's probably right. And perhaps there is a middle way. One of the proposals raised in recent years is to establish a government body that will be available to American businesses and will have the authority to execute a hackback on their behalf. For example, a company that detects a hack into its network can contact this body and ask it to conduct an investigation, which will also include a hackback to the attacker's computers if necessary. 
If the investigation points out to clear culprits, the U.S. government will be able to decide on economic sanctions against those accused of industrial espionage, thereby charging them with the full price for the crimes they committed, as opposed to what is happening today. Of course, this governmental response would probably be agonizingly slow in cybersecurity terms, but this hypothetical body would operate with maximum transparency and with open source and civilian tools so that it would be completely separate from the government's cyber intelligence bodies. It could, in theory, even be financed by the funds of civilian companies that want such a defensive umbrella. Such an organization could therefore provide a market function, like a private company would, while remaining within the legal boundaries of the U.S. government. Yet it remains a far-out idea today, so we'll have to wait and see if such a proposal could really work. Will the hackback become a legitimate tool in the world of information security and perhaps even a government service? Time will tell. What is certain is that retaliation is a complex strategy in cybersecurity full of pitfalls and traps, both legally and ethically. That's it. Thank you for listening. Visit malicious.life to subscribe to our podcast, read full transcripts, and download other episodes. Our Twiddle handle is at maliciouslife, and my personal handle is at ranlevy, R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Drop me a line at ran at ranlevy.com, and if you love the show, we'd love a good review on iTunes. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.